0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, Mr. McMillan, it's a good thing we do cover topics in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please, because today we're going to need them all. What a difference a week makes. There's so much data and information avalanching us, to turn a noun into a verb, that it's just overwhelming. But what we're going to have to do, I think, in this, in this uh, because so much of this is a little bit gloomy, we're going to have to lighten our load up at some point in the show. So to that end, at the top of our second half, we're going to go to a a long-time standby we've had, a guy who's always interesting and always informative, Dr. Howard McKinney. We're going to put 15 minutes of Howard into our second segment because we just need to. Plus, I'm sure, like most of you, you get tired of hearing nothing but my voice. I know I do. Me too. People keep sending these memes around and some of them are useful. Here's one I like. It says, I think that when the dust settles, we will realize how little we need, how very much we actually have and the true value of human connection. One can hope so. One uh, joke we referred to, I think, when we first started the show, something like 18 years ago, was one of these, you know it's going to be a bad day when... Dot, dot, dot. One of them was, you wake up face down in the gutter. My favorite was, you turn on the television, and they're showing emergency exits from the city. I thought of that when I got a local news feed pointing out that a rabid bat had been captured about, oh, a tenth of a mile from where we're sitting at the moment. It revealed that a Mexican free-tailed bat had been retrieved from a balcony nearby and tested positive for rabies. If my memory serves me correctly, when you're driving over the uh, causeway between Davis and Sacramento on Highway 80 and you do that about dusk and this huge cloud of bats erupts, I think those are the Mexican Free Tales. They're obviously in the Bay Area. The report was that, to police knowledge, no one had contact with the bat, nor did any animal. The vector control staff members of Alameda County were going door to door to tell people in the surrounding area where the bat was found about the discovery. The piece also noted that rabies is fatal unless a person or animal gets a series of shots soon after being exposed. So yeah, like we need another potentially fatal virus that can move from animals into humans. I think our plate's pretty full when it comes to that. Of course, this did prompt in my mind the question of, um, do the anti-vaxxers refuse a rabies vaccination if they're bitten by a skunk or a bat? I know we don't know the answer to that question. We are acquainted with a few anti-vaxxers. I guess I'll put the question to them. Speaking of anti-vaxxers, we mentioned on last week's program that there is a dreadful video circulating, and I was reluctant to even name it, but I guess I can now. It's called Plandemic. It's 26 minutes long. It's produced by some off-the-cuff documentarian who claims he made it for $2,000. It's filled with really really bad information. You are counseled to not wear a mask, for example. The video implies that all of this social distancing is just going to make things worse. It's it's really bad. It's so bad that apparently Twitter and YouTube have stepped up to ban the video as being contrary to the interests and welfare of the public, which frankly it is. There's a lot of bad science in it. If you've seen it, I hope you will take it with a grain of salt because that is what it deserves. It's it's medically inaccurate again and again and again. And maybe at this point, the less we say about it, the better. But this does illustrate something that is currently going on. And I think it was well summarized by New Scientist magazine that had an editorial and an essay in um, the current edition titled, Good Science, Bad Science. The subheadline is, the pandemic has generated a dangerous infodemic. Infodemic is a good word. We're going to keep using it. Article by Graham Lawton does point out that amid the pandemic, a secondary epidemic of preliminary, unverified, and misinterpreted research has broken out. And the horrible thing about this is it's seeming to be very effective in how people are being manipulated. We have uh, commented on this show numerous times about the great danger in the fact that social media, which is where a huge battle is being fought currently, and just other applications of big tech allow them to go in and see what our habits really are and therefore know how to best manipulate us. Another meme that's been sent around, it was a very good cartoon, it might have been from the New Yorker, I don't know, shows a couple with a cup of coffee talking to one another and the guy says, have you seen the news? And the woman responds, I've seen my news. And I must say, this correspondent is currently dumbfounded at how people are perceiving the news because this depends on what news they are plugged into. Said new scientists, once the COVID-19 pandemic is over, investigators will delve into what went wrong and how to prevent similar crises from ever happening again. To which I would add, I certainly hope so because COVID-19 is not the end of the line. More are certain to come. Magazine said, these must take a hard look at the so-called infodemic of poor information that has helped make a bad situation that much worse. And because this show talks about science and politics, we must at this point jump to a statement made just a couple of days ago by the President of the United States, who on May 11th reiterated the false claim that anybody in America who wants a test can get a test. It wasn't true when he said it in March for the first time, and it's not true now. And worse, it's probably not going to be true for quite some time, which is rather critical, given the fact that we are loosening restrictions across this nation. And the key to fighting COVID-19 is A, testing, and B, contact tracing as we maintain some reasonable social isolation. We're going to talk at length, I hope, not just in this show, but in the next couple of shows, about this info war going on. And the importance of keeping in mind the fact that our president has issues with being truthful. And yet, to their detriment, many people choose to believe him. When last Monday, the president made the same claim about coronavirus testing that he did in early March, he did get implicitly corrected by the Assistant Secretary for Health, Brent Girard, who is the administration's testing coordinator, who said, everybody who needs a test, not as Trump said, wants a test, can get a test. Gerard explained that he was talking about people who are symptomatic with a respiratory illness who need to be contact traced, meaning they have been in contact with someone who has tested positive. But good old Donald returned to his original language saying, if people want to get tested, they get tested. And then he added the following, and I'm sorry, I just have to pause for a moment. The president added, but for the most part, they shouldn't want to get tested. There's no reason. Now, it's been widely noted that coronavirus has gotten into the White House. Not just Vice President Mike Pence's uh, associates, but part of the president's support team, as reported on last week's show. Now, keep in mind that apparently the president and vice president are being tested regularly. Reportedly, when Trump got wind of the fact that uh, he'd been potentially exposed to someone with the virus, he had a lava-like angry eruption, furious that because his staff had not done enough, he'd been put at some risk. This is the guy that's telling the public, but for the most part, they shouldn't want to get tested. There's no reason. For the record, Kaiser Health News reported last week that the availability of testing in California varied widely from county to county, while some counties said they could test even asymptomatic residents. One county had so few testing supplies that officials have resorted to buying swabs on Amazon and pilfering chlamydia testing kits for swabs and the liquid used to transport viral specimens to labs my friend who works in a laboratory here in Northern California has confirmed for me, no, we still don't have enough tests. This actually is the key to how this virus broke loose. There is a tremendously detailed article in the June issue of Rolling Stone that we need to go through in some detail. We have so much to talk about today. I think we're going to have to uh, have a second show this week, Mr. McMillan. The details of this need to be examined. To extract just one small quote from the article, and we want to thank uh, listener Michael for s- drawing our attention to this. The mismanagement of the epidemic has cost lives. With adequate testing from the beginning, said Dr. Howard Foreman, a Yale professor of public health policy, we would have been able to stop the spread of this virus in its tracks the way that many other nations have. Instead, said Senator Patty Murray from the state of Washington, the administration's response was wait until it's too late and then try to contain one of the most aggressive viruses that we've ever seen. Blind to the virus's penetration due to inability to test and, uh, and unable to target mitigation where it was needed because they couldn't do contact tracing, the administration and state governors had to resort to the blunt instrument of shuttering the economy, said Dr. Ashish Jha, director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. And the lack of testing kept us in limbo. Our economy is shut down because we still do not have adequate testing, Jha said. We've been woefully behind from the beginning. Well, <laughs> that's assuming that we're still under lockdown. We're loosening up all over the country, as you well know. But said Rolling Stone, the coronavirus would be a devilish test of any president's leadership. But Donald Trump has failed beyond measure and the errors are metastasizing. Said Ron Klain, who served as President Obama's Ebola czar, the failed coronavirus response is not a story of mistakes that were made and have now been fixed. It's a story of mistakes that continue to cost lives. Earlier in the article, Klain said, We had ample notice to get our country ready and listed the rolling out of testing, securing protective equipment, and building up hospital capacity as necessary preventative steps. Said Klein, We spent all of January and February doing none of these things. And as a result, when this disease really exploded in March, we weren't prepared. And we do have to emphasize this previous statement. The failed coronavirus response is not a story of mistakes that were made and have now been fixed. It's the story of mistakes that continue to cost lives. And it seems quite clear that the great, vast political divide in this country is going to get a lot of people killed as we're unable to find some sort of reasonable consensus. The current cover of The Week magazine shows a college professor type wearing a mask a tie-dyed mask, giving the stink eye to a guy next to him in the grocery store wearing a MAGA hat who's scowling back at him. The cover story article was titled, The Mask Wars, How Coronavirus Protection Became a Cultural Flashpoint. Writing about this in politico.com, Ryan Lizza and Daniel Lipman noted that in our intensely polarized nation, masks have become the ultimate symbol of tribal affiliation. For progressives, wearing a mask shows that you take the pandemic seriously and are willing to make a personal sacrifice to save lives. Some conservatives see masks as a symbol of purported overreaction to the virus and thus refuse to wear them even in close quarters. The rift is now triggering confrontations. In Stillwater, Oklahoma, a measure requiring masks in public was withdrawn last week after store workers attempting to enforce it were met with threats of violence. We want to note that one of, we want to note that the person who has been badgering Radio Parallax most feverishly from the beginning, to cover this story, and who being on the vanguard of all of this went out and bought up large quantities of hand sanitizer before they got real popular. She reports to the show that A couple of days ago she went into a local grocery store in Southern California wearing of course a mask at which point a 70 year old patron chatting with the clerk took a look at her and said to her scornfully wearing a mask is not required here she lamented that only after leaving the store did she think of what would have been a really good comeback which was yeah I know but the guy that exposed me died a couple days later I said to her, I'm, I'm so sorry you didn't shoot that line back. The Daily Beast.com notes that the mask lash is being fueled by right-wing media figures. Fox News anchor Laura Ingraham, who initially urged her viewers to wear masks, now vilifies them as a plot to scare people and to keep them home. Rush Limbaugh calls them totems of control. Writing in The American Conservative, Ron Dreher said their bloviating is bizarre. By offering a measure of protection to people we interact with, widespread mask wearing offers the opportunity to ease back into a normal life, the very thing conservatives want. The Atlantic.com noted that masks are a tool, not a symbol. The evidence is now quite robust that they have some value in blocking transmission through respiratory droplets. Those who forego them risk not just their own health, but also their neighbors. And yet, as you're well aware, dear listener, we're facing not just a tremendous pushback against the wearing of masks, but against social isolation. Out in the dairy state of Wisconsin, which may well determine the November election results, Republicans in the state legislature filed a lawsuit against the governor, arguing that the state's stay-at-home order would cost Wisconsin residents their jobs and hurt many companies asserting that if it was left in place, our state will be in shambles. In a 4-3 to decision on Wednesday, March 13th, the Wisconsin Supreme Court overturned the state's stay-at-home order, ruling it unlawful and unenforceable in what's being described as a high-profile win for the state's Republican-led legislature. Yep, voting along, I guess, party lines, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled that Democratic Governor Tony Evers' administration overstepped its authority when the State Department of Health Services extended the order to May 26th. Now, this lawsuit was specifically made against the State Department of Health Services Secretary-Designee Andrea Palm and other health officials who made the decision in mid-April to extend the state's safer-at-home emergency order. At the same time as the extension, the state loosened some restrictions on certain businesses, including golf courses, public libraries, and arts and craft stores. But the justices wrote in their decision that an agency cannot confer on itself the power to dictate the lives of law-abiding individuals as comprehensively as the order does without reaching beyond the executive branch's authority. They were arguing that we needed a place at the table to make this decision, a decision, of course, they would have opposed. Wisconsin's governor has said this ruling puts our state into chaos. Now we have no plan and no protections for the people of Wisconsin because, in overturning the order, nothing was inserted in its place. This correspondent is well acquainted with a good friend who is a practicing physician in Wisconsin. I put a request to him to comment on this. If he does so before the end of the broadcast, we will.
1: I have to confess, we toyed
0: with the idea of of not talking about coronavirus for this entire show today. That proved impossible. But the fact of the matter is, as we've noted (laughs) again and again on this program, we're going to get a chance to see how these various experiments around the country and around the world are going to go. And by the end of the month, we should have some very indications of from which direction the wind is blowing. A friend in Florida posted a cartoon (laughs) showing a couple of miners at work deep in a mine, a bunch of dead yellow birds all around them. One of the miners says, There's a lot of dead canaries. To which the other miner says, They're just anti business. We did hear about one interesting side by side comparison in Croatia. There are two parallel islands of Brac and Hvar, roughly the same size, roughly the same geography, roughly the same population, except that. One of them, Brach, had a tourist come in as they opened up their tourist industry because it's so important to have tourism. It's the lifeblood of the economy down there. We better get it restarted. They invited a tourist in who has now infected 100 residents of the island with coronavirus. The neighboring island of Havar has so far escaped. This should be an interesting, you know, (laughs) controlled study to see how these two different locations fare. We've heard also that over in Korea, which has done a spectacularly good job of managing the infection, well, apparently some dude went into a disco, some infected dude, and he's managed to generate a cluster of something like 100 cases. Fortunately for the Koreans, they're set up to contact, trace, and test, so there's no reason to believe this is going to cause an explosion in South Korea. We reported on last week's show, the article in The Guardian, which was revealing that some of the major anti-lockdown groups have links to America's far right. What a surprise. In the meantime, that has been further substantiated. The Washington Post is now reporting that after investigating these sources of advertisements and other efforts to protest lockdown and social distancing measures across American states, Many of the seemingly scattered, spontaneous outbursts of citizen activism reflect deeply interwoven networks of conservative and libertarian nonprofit organizations. The Post wrote A network of right leaning individuals and groups, aided by nimble online outfits that helped incubate the fervor erupting in state capitals across the country. The activism is often organic and the frustration deeply felt, but it is also being amplified and in some cases coordinated by longtime conservative activists whose robust operations were initially set up with help from Republican megadonors. For example, some Facebook advertisements are funded by a group known as the Convention of States, a project launched in 2015 by the donations of Robert Mercer, the billionaire hedge fund manager who Vox describes as the creator of Cambridge Analytica and a patron of Breitbart. Anyway, I'm sorry, I think I reported this on last week's show, this article from The Post. I'm getting my article order mixed up here. It's The Guardian that is that is actually weighed in on this in the meantime. Not that I mind repeating myself on this. But it is The Guardian that has reported since we last spoke to you that leaked audio recordings and online materials obtained by The Guardian reveal that one of the most prominent anti-lockdown protest groups, American Revolution 2.0, has received extensive assistance from well-established far-right actors with some extremist connections. The pages reviewed by The Guardian featured content promoting deep state or anti-China conspiracy theories anti-vaccination beliefs, and denialism about the dangers of COVID-19, which sure as hell reminds us of the pandemic video. I'd bet a hundred bucks that whoever put that documentary together has been contacted by some of these groups The Guardian is reporting on. I don't have any proof of that, but it's just my strong hunch. Since that video also promoted deep state anti-China conspiracy theories, anti-vaccination beliefs, and denialisms about the danger of the virus. Article in Vox, which I would note is endorsed by Peter Dale Scott, one of the first to coin that phrase of the deep state in relation to the American political hierarchy, clarifies the fact that while Peter originally coined that term to refer to elements of the military-industrial complex and Wall Street and their undue influence on American government and society something we would regard as a valid concept, has been hijacked by these far-right elements. Looking back on it, I sort of think that Peter Dale Scott perhaps shouldn't have gone on Alex Jones's program. The right's pretty clever about um, taking something that has truth in it and turning it around. In The second half of today's program we will at least take a brief look at how the Me Too movement is being used against Joe Biden. As we close this segment, we urge all of you to... Find the article in dailycost.com. Daily Cost dug up two 60 Minutes episodes, one I think from last week and one from 2004 that should be viewed. The most recent episode outlines how Trump has defunded the NIH pandemic research because its head wouldn't go along with his Chinese conspiracy theory. The brief text by Britt McCandless-Farmer notes that several U.S. officials, including Florida Republican Rep. Representative Matt Gates, who raised suspicions about the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and got that followed up by a reporter mischaracterizing key details of the NIH grant to researcher Robert Daszak during a White House press conference, which resulted in President Trump saying he would check and if any U.S. funds had been granted to the Wuhan Institute, and if so, he said, they would immediately be terminated. Well, the virologist whose funds got terminated, was the guy who's been studying how it is bats have been transmitting viruses to other animals and then on to humans? Anybody imagine that's the kind of research we need more of right now? We're out of time, but Mr. Maryland, see if you can't run a 30-second clip from the January 21st, 2004 episode of 60 Minutes.
2: Is there a way to know that this virus, SARS-CoV-2? emerge from the wild into the human population, or has that not been proven yet?
1: Well, I'm a scientist, and what I do is, I look at the evidence around a hypothesis. There is a huge amount of evidence that these viruses repeatedly emerge into people from wild animals in rural areas through things like hunting and eating wildlife. There is zero evidence that this virus came out of a lab in China.
2: Does the Wuhan Institute of Virology, to your knowledge, have this virus in its inventory? No. Why do you say so? Uh,
1: The closest known relative is one that's different enough that it is not SARS-CoV-2. So there's just no evidence that anybody had it in the lab anywhere in the world prior to the outbreak.
2: I've called on Secretary Azar to immediately halt this grant to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They have not been honest, and at worst, they've been negligent to the point of many, many deaths throughout the world. Dishonest and negligent allegations have now ended EcoHealth's carefully reviewed research designed to stop pandemics. Representative Matt Gates wore a gas mask on the floor of the House to lampoon the crisis. This was back in the beginning of March, weeks before masks were common. Peter Dashak, whose researchers wear masks to shield them from viruses in the wild, says his team— is now facing layoffs.
1: This politicization of science is really damaging. You know, the conspiracy theories out there have essentially closed down communication between scientists in China and scientists in the US. We need that communication in an outbreak to learn from them how they controlled it so we can control it better. Um, It's sad to say, but it will probably cost lives By sort of narrow mindedly focusing in on ourselves or on labs or on a certain cultural politics, we miss the real enemy.
0: We'll have a little bit more to say about that in our second half today, but let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax.